see everybody. Good to be here. Yeah. Hey. Thank you. <laughs> it's quite a couple of a uh, couple of weeks here. Uh, I think not. Every, I know not everybody knows, but I had to go to the hospital after uh, Sunday service a couple weeks back. I had didn't know at the time appendicitis, and um, so it created. You know, I spent a lot of time. I ended up spending a lot of time in that hospital, but it's really good to be back. In fact, this morning I was uh, talking. Uh, there was a couple of uh, ladies who had come, a couple of people had come in and they said, Pastor, it's so good to see you're alive and well. <laughs> I said, thank you, thank you. And then there was another one who was on the side. She says, what happened? She was gone. She had been gone for a couple of weeks. She said, what happened? What, what, what occurred? Where did you go? I said, well, I went on a vacation, you know? <laughs> went to um, the uh, five-star hotel, you know, Kaiser, the Kaiser. <laughs> It was, it, but it was really an amazing, uh, just you know, just experience. Something I hadn't experienced in a long, long time. I mean, I've been probably about oh, I don't think I had been in the hospital for about thirty years. I mean, I've been, I visited it, and I've watched my kids get born there and stuff, but I actually hadn't been put into the hospital, and so it was real, um, you know, intense experience. I, I had just finished the whole weekend in men's retreat, uh, you know, preaching this we- the weekend. And I was, you know, I just been feeling that for a few days, just, uh, you know, like maybe I pulled a muscle or something. I wasn't feeling great. Anyway, I get, I get home and I'm just sitting there in a chair and I'm going, man, something's not right. And I, I called up my wife. She was away at a meeting. And I said, you know, and I'm, it's around eight o'clock. I said, I think, you know, I think I, I don't think I'm doing, I think I'm not going too good here. I, I think I need to go in and I think I might need to go in the hospital, get checked out. You know, so we ended up doing that. I ended up, by the time I got to the hospital, I was, I was kind of like moving really slow, you know. And um, I get in there. They put me in, the, in a bed in the emergency room and uh, take some blood. And then I got a CAT scan. They said, you know what, something shut up in the blood. We want to double check it, take a CAT scan. I mean, so I ended up getting a CAT scan. And I still remember. It was very vivid. You know, I, it's around 1130. Um, a doctor walks in. And uh, she was very friendly, actually. I was, I, you know, I said, she said she was friendly, and it kind of caught me off guard because she was friendly and she was smiling, and then she got real close to me. And I said, I said, um, so, you know, what, what's going on with me? What's the, what's the result? She says, it's bad. <laughs> like, like how? Like, what does that mean? What do you mean bad? You know? I, she goes, I, I can't even see your appendix. You know? I said, where is it? Where did it go? Like, what, what happened to it? You know, and they said, we're not sure. You know, said, oh, we're going to have to call in somebody. So they ended up calling in the surgeon. And it ended up being a bottom line. He came in. He was much more calm. <laughs> he, he, uh, he called me down. Oh, the funny thing was, her name was Joy of all names. I remember that vividly now. Oh, the Joy. And, and so, you know, and so anyway, he ends, up, he ends up talking with me and says, you know what? It, it's, it, we're not sure. It, it, might, it might just be really inflamed in there, um, or it could be ruptured you know, perforated, but either way, um, you're going in, you're going into the hospital. So I went in and uh, I ended up that night, you know, I was just in there and I ended up, ended up being basically there for about five to six days. They never actually took it out, by the way. They just put me on heavy duty antibiotics. They're gonna make a decision this week about, week about what to do, if anything, might just let it be. Um, so very, very intense, uh, whole three days, I didn't have any, I didn't, wasn't able to eat or drink. That was a surprise to me. I didn't even, wasn't even allowed to drink water. They had just me on the IV. So it was, real, it was a real intense experience. And it was very humbling, and it was something that, um, you know, I need to say this. I need to say thank you to those of you who've kept me in prayer, and also um, just some of you were just amazingly kind, 
in your words and thoughts. I appreciate it so much. But now we're, we're moving into a, a mess. I really wanted to preach this weekend. It was really important to me to be able to do it. If something happens, this will be the most memorable service ever, by the way. <laughs> but um, we're going to give it a best shot we have. Now, you know, this the radical commitment, this has been focusing on uh, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And really, you know, I'm going to just say this at the front end because it has some value in saying it. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know what, you know, because we're looking at sort of like Bible history and, and um, we're, we're going back to the book of Acts. We're sort of tracing the emergence of Saul and, and how the church sort of grows and expands. And well, sometimes we might say, well, what, 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 what is the real benefit for, for us here? I want to say for, for sure one thing. There's a couple of them. And I, it's, I think it's helpful to just sort of be thinking about this. For one, there's a huge benefit in just, if, especially if we're a follower of the Lord, We've really made a commitment, and we're, we're serious about our walk with Jesus, and we, we want to, you know, we want to be able to, we should know what we believe. It's important to have some real working knowledge of how the church grows, how it emerges, how Saul becomes Paul. How does this message get out from being a, a very kind of exclusively contained uh, Jewish church in Jerusalem to breaking out into the Gentile world? How does that happen? And so, that, so part of what we're looking at is, is the way in which God allows this to happen. We, need to be, we should be able to, to, to explain and, and be able to have a good understanding and expansive knowledge base of how the church grows. The second reason is the stuff that we're looking at um, has another benefit because so much of it is connected to geography and history. And that is so relevant today. I mean, so much of these places that we're looking at, the cities, of the region, it's in the news all the time. And it's really good for us, especially because there's always a temptation to kind of be parochial in our perceptions and sort of get locked into just our world or our nation. You know, we might periodically hear about something, but to really have a great growing working knowledge of, of the, you know, sort of not the place where so much of the current events are taking place. It's Syria, Israel, Jerusalem, Damascus, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Egypt to the south. All these places are in the news all the time. So the Mediterranean is a hotbed of, you know, activity that affects all of our lives in so many amazing ways. So it's good. So there's a benefit there. I just think it's helpful to be always a growing person, growing our biblical knowledge, growing understanding of sort of the world and history and geography. But then for me personally, um, and one of the reasons why I often will put at the back end of a teaching application points is because I think it's really important for all of us to be able to apply the things that we're also learning and to take them outside into our real life. That for me, it, it, as valuable as it is for us to come together into the Lord's house and to learn about the Bible and to have our knowledge base enhanced, to be a growing person, um, as valuable as that is, it still has to be applied in the everydayness of our life. It has to show up in our families, in our relationships, at, at work. Um, there's a lot. So in other words, what I'm saying is, is that this has also, for it to work properly, we have to, we have to come with the idea that we're listening also to our lives. And we're listening to the Lord's voice. That God is speaking among us. And as we talk about these application principles, you know, they're really designed to get us to interact with what we're learning so that we're, we're taking it into our real life. And we're, we're a growing person. And we're listening for the voice of the Lord which is trying to perhaps underscore, it might be one thing that God's really trying to get at, but we're not just coming, doing the thing that we're, we, we, you know, not just coming to church. We're, we're coming to hear from the Lord together. 
as we share his words together. Does that make sense? So I want, I want to pray. I want to ask God to bless our time and that we have here left. And Lord, I thank you for this great, wonderful, beautiful privilege of being able to just share your words together and, and to be able to learn about you, Lord. And I know that there are things that perhaps some of us have you know, planned for the rest of the day, and it's such a beautiful day. And perhaps other, others of us, Lord, there are things that we carried in that are just kind of weighing heavy on our mind. Or maybe we're just feeling good and things are going well. And Lord, again, part of what you teach us is life always has disruptive moments. And sometimes they show up when we're least expecting them. But I want to ask your grace to be among us. I want to pray that we would be learners, but also listeners. We were listening for your voice. Um, not be in a hurry, God. We're here. We're in your house. Let's, let's honor you by focusing our mind and our attention and our heart. We ask, this, we ask this in your name, Jesus. We pray it. Amen, God. All right. Let's look at the book of Acts. Let's look at the, this. Uh, we'll just pick right up where I left off a few weeks back in Acts 11. We're going to move through this account, learning together, Acts 11, verse 19. It says, Meanwhile, the believers who have been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch of Syria, and they preached the word of God, but only to their fellow Jews. Remember, the church at this time was, was Jewish. It, it was in Jerusalem primarily. Um, the disciples were Jewish. Uh, the, up to this point, it had not really broken out into the Gentile world. There had been a few people who, like Peter, had, had a, there was a Roman centurion, Cornelius. Uh, but the majority of the Gentiles that were actually being touched were in very small amounts, and usually they had already been uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, adherents to the Jewish faith, either convert, true converts, you know, completely embracing the ceremonial law, almost the, just Jews themselves, even though they were Gentile ethnically. Um, and then there were what were known as God-fearers, uh, Gentiles who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, but, but were culturally not ready to make that leap ceremonially. Now, that's what's going So the church at this point, and notice what it says here. It says that the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death. I guess I just put up a map. We're going to kind of just be looking in and out of this, this map. But it gives everybody, again, a kind of reminder of where things are at. There's the Mediterranean Sea. You see where Jerusalem is. You see Damascus. You know, right in that area right now, there's a civil war going on. This is an intense place. A lot of things are happening right there, right now. But um, one of the cities that's mentioned, you see the island of Cyprus. You also see the, the city of Antioch in Syria, which is now present-day Turkey. But um, we're told that the, the believers were scattered. Part, you know what? They were scattered during Stephen's, uh, after Stephen's um, death. We read about Stephen's death in Acts 7. Earlier on, he's, he's murdered. He's stoned to death. Of course, that's where we're first introduced to Saul. It was while Stephen was being stoned to death because of his aggressive declaration of Jesus as Messiah that there was an extreme kind of wing um, that, that was in many ways embodied by Saul of Tarsus, who was a young Pharisee who was clearly a man of fierce intellect and deep conviction, and he adamantly opposed this way of Jesus. And as long as they kept to themselves, it was tolerated. But when they actually started to become a, uh, talking about it in an aggressive way, and it seems like even the early church kind of had two wings. The church in Jerusalem, there was kind of a Hebrew wing, you know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, Peter, that, that wing um, that were more at ease with the, the, the Hebrew you know, traditions. And then there was a, what's called a Hellenized wing or a Greek culture-impacted wing 
of the church. They were Jewish, but they had really been Greek enculturated. They were spoke Greek, uh, were very at ease in Greek culture. And so that was the wing that was most persecuted, the one that, that Saul had the most difficult time with. And they were the ones that he pursued. In fact, the, what we're told here is that it's because of Saul. You know, remember, when, during the stoning, he didn't actually throw a stone, but he just watched the coats um, of those who did the, the dirty work. And uh, he was clearly behind it and involved and supportive of it. Well, he ends up becoming the primary persecutor of this, these followers of Jesus. And it wasn't until his astonishing conversion on the road to Damascus where he asked that question, who are you, Lord, under the blinding light of the, what he said was brighter than the noonday sun, that he hears that voice call back to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, that his world is turned upside down. But what we're told is that Stephen's death initiates this season of enormous persecution that scatters the believers into these other places that up until this point, it had, they had not been willing to really go. So, you know, again... Um, that wasn't the original intention, just to stay, stay in Jerusalem, but it was Paul's, Saul's persecution, primarily, that got them outside. And, and we're told that something then remarkable happens, something that nobody was expecting occurs. And we're told in verse 20, it says this, However, some of the believers who actually had gone to Antioch, so they went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene, they actually began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. And this is, in, uh, so somewhere someone got the, this, made a decision that they were going to start sharing the message of Christ, not just with people who had, who had been Gentiles and sort of attached themselves to the Jewish faith, but they actually decided that they were going to share the message of Jesus, putting more of an emphasis on the fact that he was the Lord, the risen son. And they began to share this message with the Gentile communities. And they were shocked, astonished, because something that had never happened before occurred. Not did they just have a small response, they had an extensive response. In the city of Antioch, we're told, that was completely unexpected, unanticipated, and they were almost unprepared for it. In fact, this church emerges in the city of Antioch that no one had anticipated ever happening. It just starts bursting out, filled with Gentiles, also Jewish community. It was a beautiful thing. You know, I was, I was um, reading about the city of Antioch because I really didn't have a lot of familiarity with it. Today, again, it's in modern-day Turkey. But it, I didn't know it. It was one of the three considered the third greatest Roman city at that time in the Roman Empire. The first one, of course, Rome. Then there was Alexandria. Third one was Antioch. Why? In fact, the, the governor of, Syria, of the whole region resided in Antioch. The reason is because it became kind of a... a entry point for the caravans from the east that were going west to Europe and vice versa. It was this, it was this critical um, piece of, that joined together the, almost like the two, con, the two places, Asia and Europe. And it became this sort of highway. And uh, tons of uh, major city develops. It be, it's a very, it was, I was kind of surprised. The, the city itself, and again, here, here's the geography piece. It'll be, it's going to come into play later on. The, you can see Seleucia. That was the, the harbor. That was where goods came in. Then there was a river, the Orontes River, 16 miles long to the city of Antioch. And there was a lot of movement up and down that river. That city became a place where many ethnicities converged. It was highly enculturated. In fact, I was reading an article that was talking about the kind of unique dynamic that characterized the city of Antioch, which is the place where the first Gentile, you know, 
large group of Gentile, the church is kind of birthed right where the gospel crosses over in this city. And I was reading, well, what, what was it about that city that made it so unique? Look, at, I put this in your handout. It's in the third column there. I just put a part, portion of that article. It says, the residents of Antioch had a rambunctious reputation, partly from their satirical wit and a lively sense of the ridiculous. So it had a sophisticated humor, um, but mainly we're told their main reputation was connected to, mainly, but mainly because of a sex life which even ancient Rome rated excessive. Five miles south on the pass into the hills stood the extensive sacred grove of Daphne, dominated by an enormous statue of the god Apollo. And we also know that it was there that there were hundreds of prostitutes that gave their bodies to anyone who cared to worship the goddess of love. So there was a connection between all of these, this is the environment. And then I went on, and I, I, this is not in your handout, but it goes on to talk about how this, and I just asked if they could scroll it. It says, among the trees and the temples also lived a human floatsome, that is a floating population of people who did not have residence in the city, but were sort of on the outskirts of the city. And that was made up, this is a huge number of escaped criminals, people who went there to get lost. Uh, escaped slaves, uh, we know that there were uh, debtors, who couldn't pay their debts. There were others who were seeking sanctuary and could get lost in the city. The city, so I mean, it's really interesting to think about the environment where the message of Christ starts to break out into the Gentile believing. And really, they, they become the first significant church and expression of a, of, a, of a church that really models for the first time Jews and Gentiles being together. In fact, we know that part of what made the church so unique and, it, and we, we know that there were other things going on in the city, you know, was besides all the architecture, the baths, the homes, the gymnasiums, just like any great Greco-Roman city, um, that, that we're told that in verse 22, and I, I want to bring your attention back there, it says that when the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they decided, you know, we're going to go send someone to verify what we hear that is happening, and the person they decided to send is Barnabas. It says here they decided to send Barnabas to Antioch. Remember, Barnabas is the one who had such a great reputation as a wonderful leader. He was a, known as a loving, encouraging, generous man. Uh, he was the one who sponsored Saul when no one else believed in him, that he had really changed. He was the one that put his reputation on the line. He was loved and revered and trusted by so many people. And he had this encouraging gift. And it says that when he, when he basically is sent by the Jerusalem church to go find out what's actually going on in Antioch, and when he arrived, he was shocked himself because he saw that there was this amazing evidence of God's blessing. He, and when he saw it, he was just filled with joy. It says in the 23rd verse that he, he actually started encouraging the believers to stay true to the Lord. And we were told that Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. So, you know, Barnabas gets there. He's absolutely impressed by what he's seen. He's never seen anything like it before. Here is for the first time in a major city. But this is where it starts. First time ever to see Jews and Gentiles together, and predominantly Gentiles, non-Jewish community, together worshiping Jesus. And there were an amazing scope of people from different socioeconomic places. You know, most cities in Rome, like and, and Antioch was not an exception to the rule, were characterized by either extreme wealth or ex and extreme poverty. 
But one of the unique things about the Christian expression that first emerges in the city of Antioch is that you have coming together for the first time people from so many different backgrounds, the wealthy and the poor, slaves. They're worshiping together, usually on Sunday, which was the resurrection day. But some of them would also include in their expression that going to the synagogue on Saturday. So it was a combined thing as well. I, I say that because it's very, it was very inspiring. Barnabas is looking at what's going on. You know what he says? He goes, you know who I think would actually be a real blessing in what's going on here? Because no doubt Barnabas remembered the conversations he had with Saul and how Saul had told him that when the Lord Jesus really turned his life around, that one of the things the Lord mentioned to him was that he was going to be a, a man who, who would reach the Gentiles for Christ. And Saul had this burden for the, the non-Jewish people. He loved his people. He said he'd give his life for his people to know Christ, to know Jesus. He said, but he also had this love that God gave him to see, to see the Gentiles also embrace this one that he had once hated. And so Barnabas is thinking in his mind, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find Saul. And where was Saul at the time? He's in Tarsus. Remember what had happened earlier when he had been in Jerusalem? He had, there was an attempt that was made to assassinate him. And because he had become some of his old colleagues, the irony again is right there. Here he was, the one who had been persecuted, was the persecutor. Now he was becoming the persecuted. Now he was the prey. And they told him, you got to get out of here because they want you dead. You're become, and he, Paul was so, Saul was so intense and so um, reluctant to be careful that he ignited things. And so the, 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 the leaders in the church of Jerusalem said, it's going to be better for everybody, especially for you, but also for us, for you to get out of here. So they took him out of Jerusalem, sent him to Caesarea, put him on a boat, and sent him back home to Tarsus, where he was doing just kind of modest ministry on his own, disconnected from everybody else. So that's where Saul was. Barnabas, look what it says here in verse 25. It says, then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. So, and again, I mean, there in contrast to today, there's no mechanism for communication. It's not like we just, you know, make a phone call or... You know, email, it's just not gonna, there's no way to communicate. There's no, the, the only way you go is you, you take, you basically you got to make a trip, either by land or sea. We don't know which one he went. But he goes from Antioch to Sarsus, and he goes to look for Saul, and he, he says, I know he would be such a blessing for what is happening right now. He's a man of two cultures. He can relate to the Gentiles and, the Jew, and his Jewish people. He, there's such a, an amazing thing happening. He would be so inspired. He would be a blessing. Barnabas goes to look for him. Look what it says in verse 26. It says, when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So they go from Tarsus back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church. Look at this. For a whole year, a full year, Barnabas as the senior leader, Paul as associate, Saul as associate, teaching large crowds of people. So there were a lot of people. And, and oh, we're told something else. For the first time ever, it was here at Antioch, the first time ever that believers were called Christians. That's where it started, that a name now that has been connected for generations began here in this moment. Earlier on, they were known as followers of, of, the, of the way, followers of Jesus the Nazarene. You know, uh, never had they been called. What evidently happened, some say they were given that name derisively. Uh, others said that it, it was actually, no, just because they were always talking about Jesus as the Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Um, the, the promised one, the Messiah, the, the one who has come, the Lord of glory, the God's only son, um, that this was part, that they started to talk about it so much that 
It just, that's how people referred to them. But this is where they first get called. And then we're told one final little addendum. They're told that during this time, some of the prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was a, was a man named Agabus. He stood up in one of the meetings. He predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled actually during the reign of Claudius. And so the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could and this they did entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Here's the irony of what happens. It was Jerusalem that had been the mother church, but what it ha- there was such an extensive famine, and they had already been under a significant season of persecution, that they were suffering. And the astonishing development was that now it was the Gentile, predominantly um, you know, Gentile church in Antioch, that, uh, that were, were basically creating a relief fund to bring to the church in Jerusalem that had suffered so much under the, the famine. We would call it a bad economy. And their generosity, their kindness, their sense of unity, Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas knew was critical to see themselves as people joined together, not disconnected. They decided to help out. It was a tremendous blessing. Now, I said all that to get to this. Here are my applications. Here's what I'd like us to think about, talk about, pray over, even converse around. What does the Lord want to underscore for us? Here's what stood out to me. And I'll just kind of put this up there. I want you to know, and this, the, the phrase itself is simple, but there's, there's something to this. There are, I want, can we notice, number one, that God works in ways that sometimes we would have never chosen? That, well, think about it. How does the church grow? It grew through persecution. I mean, up until this point, even though Jesus had said to them, I want you to take this message, not just keep it here in Jerusalem, but I want you to take it to Judea, and then I want you to take it to Samaria, and then, like a concentric circle, I want you to take it to the uttermost parts of the world, this message of who I am. Well, they hadn't really done much. They had kept it pretty contained. The irony, of course, is that it was Saul who God used in some way, even though we would go, how did, he was the one that is the one that pushes them outside their border. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing when you think about it because hey, you think about it. He is the one that God uses. He, he starts the persecution that scatters them, and then he could have never known it, but then that scattering produces a church that later on in his life he will be called in to help grow the harvest in. And it all started because he, in his absurd, anger, violent way, pushed something as a catalyst with no desire to help, but indirectly, God uses that to create something that Saul ultimately comes back around to help grow. It's astonishing when you think about it. The ways that we, it's a reminder that there are things that sometimes are going on that we may never actually ever appreciate. I was thinking about this. That's really good medicine for you and me. It was good for me, at least. I had a lot of time to think the last couple of weeks. Um, You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, one, how fragile our our lives really are. And we think we're in control, but we're not. Um, We are, as the Bible says, jars of clay. That's true physically, but that's also true true emotionally. I, for me personally, it, it was a reminder as, I, as I, I, you know, I was telling someone, I said, I don't think I was, there was one night, when I, that Sunday night when I got in, and it turned into Monday morning when I, it was really early in the morning. I had just been, 
You know, they had taken blood. I had been had the IV put in and stuff that I'm not used to doing. I had my friend with me, the pole, who I got to know a lot. Carry him with me everywhere I went, right? <laughs> me and him. We took walks together. We said hi to people together. We were connected. We were very connected. But I, that first night, I, had, I, I, was, I was trying to go to the restroom. And uh, I got up, and I took a step or two, and I felt, I mean, I pain. Like, to where I was so, it was so much pain that I got dizzy. And I got dizzy. And then, before I even had a chance to sort of catch myself, I just broke out. Water just started streaming down. My, I just felt water just coming down. I was like, I, I, and then I, I stumbled back to the bed, and I, 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 I pressed the button to get somebody to come and help me, which I, I you know. And that, that actually ended up being the bottoming out for me. It got better. They, they, were, they gave me some pain medicine and, and medication, and, and I started getting a lot of heavy dose of antibiotics and stuff. But bottom line is, I sat there, as I mentioned, for those three days, and I was just, you know, I was miserable. I was miserable. And I started saying, Lord, you know what? I know, I know I'm not supposed to be a baby, but, you know, I, I was just preaching for you a couple of hours ago. <laughs> You know, I did a men's retreat, and you know, I started saying, "Why? What, what? What did I? What did I? Why am I here?" You know, and 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 you know, I was just kind of in between thinking about just the amazing turn of events that had happened so fast. You know what I call those things? Disruptive moments. We're moving along through life, and all of a sudden, something hits. Boom! Someone says something, tells us something. Or something happens. Huh. Or something occurs. We didn't control it. We didn't see it coming. Maybe we had a little bit of a sense. We weren't ready for it. Everything is reordered in that moment. All the stuff, you know what? All the stuff that I was thinking about that was such a big deal wasn't as big of a deal. A lot of things that were priorities to me, I was thinking, oh, what am I gonna do about this? Oh, I gotta get that done. I've got a deadline here. Oh, what about next? None. My week was my week it changed so fast and it changed in such a dramatic way. That's life. You know what that teaches us? Well, I felt this is what the Lord was saying to me. Stay humble. Stay humble. And always trust me. Watch your attitude. Don't start feeling sorry for yourself. You do it for a little bit, but not too much. All right? <laughs> and certainly don't get angry. So I decided I'm not even going. The why? I, I, this, I mean, this is just normal. This is life. Live in a broken world, I got a body that's, that's not going to last forever. Part of the invitation of Jesus is to accept his gift of eternal life and someday a newly formed body. How good will that be? But in the meantime, we have a life to live. That life has its moments. Leads me to the second piece here. Just stay with me on it. This one spoke most to me is this, that there, when I looked at this, I said, Lord, we're going to have seasons of dormancy. Listen, we're going to have seasons of dormancy when it, it may seem like little is actually happening in our life. I go back to Saul here, because after escaping Jerusalem, essentially, he heads back to Tarsus, like we talked about, right? Listen, he heads back. Think of you, some of us might be able to relate to this. Think about how he actually heads back to his hometown. He was once the brightest student the man with the future and all the accoutrements that go with it. Now he's heading back home, stripped down. He has no career. It's gone, obliterated. 
He has no clarity of purpose. He has no real sense, as far as we can tell, of what his next step will be. He's doing some things around his region, but nothing that would even be noted in the Scripture. He has no knowledge of God's timing. He only has these large words that he's been given. And on top of that, he has no real community of believers. In fact, the community of believers that he had wanted to connect with the most told him he needed to go. And in many ways, he is, I'm not saying it completely, but in many ways, he is alone. He's just waiting. And it seems like little is happening. Maybe he thought every now and then, and I'm just, this is just kind of how I was thinking about it. Maybe he thought every now and then, why did, why did, why did Jesus do this to me? Why did, he, why did he call me, flip my world upside down, and then put me on the shelf? Like now, what am I doing? I'm not. What's going on here? You see, I, I, I think that the, listen, listen, hear me out. It's in these waiting places in our lives, these transition places. This is, the, this is where I've watched a lot of people, and I, you know what? I'm not exempt. You can get off track there if you're not careful. We start thinking about what should be, what's not happening, we can get reckless. We can get. Um, you know, it's good to rest and recover, but but let's not get sloppy and just give up. That can happen at relational levels. It certainly can happen with the Lord. What we should be doing is preparing ourselves for the opportunity that may never come. But if it does, we're ready. So what we've done is we've said, Lord, during this time, work in my life, work in my heart. What good things are you trying to say in me? What things are you trying to? Get out of me. What stuff do you want me to pay attention to? Do you know that a lot of growth occurs below the surface? Sometimes the most profound growth occurs not in the moments of emergence. The real growth takes place underneath the surface, in the dormant seasons. That's where things is happening underneath. A lot of times it's in these waiting places in our lives where the real opportunity is there for us to trust God to really grow in depth. And I was thinking, I was going, Lord, that's exactly what you wanted to do in Saul. You, it was, it's absolutely essential that he was deeply rooted. Why? Because of the task that lay ahead of him. I mean, it was going to require a tenacity that by any measure must be seen as uncommon. I mean, God basically said to him, you are going to be, of all the people in the world, my true ambassador. And I am sending you into places where there are Gentile power brokers and kings and people with great authority, not to mention the fact that you're going to be working with those who are, you know, working people and, and the poor, but I am also, and your own people, but I am sending you specifically into the power base of the Gentile world to represent me. That's heady stuff. And you know what God said almost as a counterbalance to, to counterweight it? He's, because that, you can get proud. You know what he did? He said, but I'm going to tell you something else that's going to happen to you. You're going you're to suffer. You're going to really suffer. Just be prepared for that. That, that, that was intense. So he's basically saying, you need to be preparing for that and get prepared for it. I thought, Lord, there are times where you're trying to prepare us in ways that we... <laughs> 
I'm just saying. <laughs> and last thing, this stood out to me. May we be known, you and me, once you make this step, may we be known as a people who follow Christ. May it show up in our attitudes, in our actions, in our words. Yes, our words. Yes. Please, Lord. They're not perfect. Never going to be perfect. I know that. You know, I had a lot of friends on my fourth row. Shout out to Kaiser Fourth Floor. They were very beautiful people. And someone had worked really hard to create a culture of hospitality that I noticed. I thought, Lord, some part of this is also, this is important for a church to have this same spirit of comfort as much as we can. But I thought, Lord, also give me the opportunity as it arises to appropriately talk about you, not as a pastor, but really as someone who is a follower and lover of Jesus. Help me, Lord, in the casual conversations that I will have and did have to create good bridges of opportunity to let it be known that I am someone who loves you. For Paul would later say, I am not ashamed in his soaring declaration at the opening of the letter to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to my Jewish people first, but then also to the Greek, the Gentile as well. That's what he said. Did not our master teach us, our Lord, our example today to us, let your light so shine before men, before people, that they may see the goodness of your life and give glory, irresistibly drawn to God in heaven. But here's the question. How will people know if the people who claim to love him never talk about him? People say we love them, but we don't talk about them. So I don't want to force anything. It's kind of like Jesus said, do not, he did not say, get the light and hold it tight. He said, get the light and uncover it. He, he said, live the life by my grace, as best with my help as you can. But also speak for me. Do not be ashamed of me. They were known as Christians. May we be known as one as well. Let's pray, Lord. Lord, we thank you uh, for the precious privilege of being able to serve and honor you. We pray that we would be a people who are characterized, despite all the other things that we have, as someone who loves you and who is committed to growing um, and becoming more of, a, of an an honorable, uh, humble representative of who you are because so many people have perceptions of you and many of those perceptions have been affected by hypocrisy or, or hurt and genuine wounds. Uh, but it is our desire, uh, as many of us who are here, and I know not everybody's even at that place. We, we're, some of us are just getting close to, you, to making that decision to welcome you into our lives, Lord. And may we do that. May we open up our heart to you and say, come in, Lord Jesus. But when we take that name and we accept that name, we also are accepting a responsibility to represent you, not just in how we act, but also in what we say. May we not be afraid to speak up at appropriate times in appropriate ways. I ask for this, Lord. Teach us to be unashamed, humble, unafraid, and kind. I 
ask this in Jesus' name. I pray your blessing over our closing minutes. Bless our community's time of giving and this closing song. We commit to you the rest of our day, the rest of our week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.